0: Welcome to Inside Pediatrics, a podcast brought to you by Children's Hospital of Alabama in Birmingham. I'm Tiffany Kazarowski. Today we're talking about the changes and shifts that we have had to make at Children's Hospital of Alabama when it comes to infection prevention since COVID-19 reared its ugly head in March. And I'm joined today by Dr. Cecilia Hutto. She is a professor of infectious diseases at UAB, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the medical director of infection prevention and control here at Children's. Welcome, Dr. Hutto. Thank you. So I have to say we are distanced here in our little studio and we both have our masks on. So if it sounds a little muffled, that's why. We're both taking those precautions. And Dr. Hutto, something I wanted to start with is that Children's realized pretty early on that we needed to develop some sort of a task force.
1: Can you tell us about that? That's correct, and the task force is something that hospitals use across the country when there is a potential evolving emergency, something different that's going to affect the hospital, the processes in the hospital, the safety of patients, the safety of healthcare workers. And so when we knew that there was a pandemic, when we first understood that there was a pandemic happening that was likely going to affect our hospital, then what happens and and this happens we've done this before like for Ebola we mm-hmm. had a task force during the Ebola outbreak and Ebola concern fortunately we never had patients here but we did a lot of preparation and work to get the hospital ready and we've done it we understood that this pandemic was likely going to affect our hospital mm-hmm. so the task force includes a group of people from various areas of the hospital who are responsible for various issues related to patient care making sure that our patients are that our patients who don't have coronavirus and those who may have coronavirus or do are provided care appropriately. All the patients are safe. And it also is important to provide to make sure that our health care workers are safe. The task force involves, as I said, people from throughout the hospital, multiple areas of the hospital, all involved in patient care. We know that our processes for providing care are gonna change. We need to make determine what those process, those changes will be, who will be involved in, in making those changes. We have, need to educate healthcare workers about the changes. We have to make sure that we have the equipment and mm-hmm. the supplies that we need. So our task force included certainly nursing, nursing leaders, nursing leadership as continued, physicians, physician leaderships, administrators, people from the laboratory is important. We have to know what kind of Testing that's going to be done, what kind of reagents are needed for testing. We have to make sure that we have adequate PPE. We've all heard that term a lot. And that has been a major issue for all hospitals doing ongoing assessments. So, whoever is the central supply and whoever in the hospital is responsible for those is a major part of the task force. People who are responsible for cleaning of the hospital, Right, we have to make sure that they're involved because the cleaning is could potentially change. And we also need to make sure that everyone in the hospital is aware of the change in process and educate those people. So educators in the hospital, nursing educators are extremely important in the task force. All hospitals have these task force when we have situations like pandemics, like the coronavirus pandemic. It, it was very active in the beginning, it continues to be active as changes occur mm-hmm. and they have occurred during the course of this pandemic. What are
0: some of the things that we instituted here in the very beginning to ensure the safety of our patients and employees and, and physicians?
1: A number of changes have been instituted, our changes, are not something that we just make up. We are using recommendations from from national organizations that have dealt with pandemics pr- previous to this. So uh-huh. our most of our recommendations for changes that we need to institute in the hospital have come from the CDC. Other hospitals use the same CDC guidelines. And as these have changed, we have changed. We've changed those processes. But right initially, what we understood that we needed to do, one of the things that we needed to do was decrease the number of people who did not need to be in the hospital. We needed to decrease the number of people in the hospital. Right. The more people we have, the greater the risk for everyone that if there are if there are individuals with infection, they could spread the infection. So only essential employees, remained on campus. If employees or personnel could work from home, they began working from home and they continue. Many of those continue to do that at this time. We also have changed our policy in terms of visitors. In the fall and winter when we have influenza, there's a visitor policy that we usually put in place to decrease the visitors. We instituted that policy right away and that policy is continued so that we don't allow visitors in the hospital. Actually, we dial allow no visitors. The only people who can visit patients are, are their parents. The parents can come if they're inpatients. The parents can be with the, with the child, right. but no one other than the parents. Well, our outpatient clinic schedule changed tremendously during this time. We began seeing patients that could be seen or are having visits by telehealth as many institutions have. So the hospital has used telehealth and continues to do telehealth for visits at this point in time. We only have seen patients that need to be seen on an in-person visit and for those visits only a single parent is allowed to come into the hospital and then those and this is something else that we do to make sure that the patient that the hospital is safe for parents. We screen children that have appointments for the clinic's the 24 hours before they come in and if they have any symptoms suggestive that it could be coronavirus either in the patient or the parent that's going to accompany the patient or if they've had any any close contact, we reschedule those patients so that we're trying to decrease people who come into the hospital who may potentially have coronavirus.
0: So they're receiving a call, you're saying, yes. 24 hours before their appointment right? just to screen for... Any types of issues they may be having, symptoms they might be having. Exactly,
1: to decrease. We're screening them again, and hospital personnel are screened as they enter the hospital. They're screened based on questions that could suggest they're having symptoms, and they're also, temperatures are being taken. So hospital personnel are screened, patients coming into the clinic, and their parents are screened. And then we are making sure that the patients come to clinic, that we have adequate space in clinic to space out parents and children who are in clinic so that they are distanced from each other. We're requiring masking now and have required masking of parents and children coming in, all healthcare workers. Universal masking is required.
0: Why with this particular virus are we masking?
1: Masking is really related to how this virus is transmitted. And we know that the virus, like other respiratory viruses, is transmitted person to person. So through exchange of secretions, and that's oral secretions, nasal secretions. So we know that if we're in contact with another person and we're talking to that person, even if we can't see it sometimes, there are very small droplets of sputum Mm phlegm that we expel into the air. And it can be there, depending on what the virus, what virus we're talking about, it can be there for uh, differing amounts of time. So for this virus, it it transmitted via something called droplets. And we think it's, and it's felt that it's mostly large droplets, which don't stay in the air a long period of time. That's another infection that people are familiar with that can be spread through droplet transmission is tuberculosis. Tuberculosis, we know probably a lot more about it because it's been around a lot longer, but it also is droplet spread, but it probably stays in the air a lot longer than this particular coronavirus. So if you have a mask on, if we have a mask and we're talking to someone, if we're coughing, if we're sneezing, if we have the potential to exchange or to expel our oral secretions into the air even if we can't see them Mm -hmm. the mask can prevent that from happening depending on the kind of mask you have you protect certainly protect the people in front of you and you protect yourself to some extent now some masks are better than others at protecting the person wearing them but we know that we can protect and it's been shown in many ways that we can protect the people who we're in contact with who we're talking to anybody over the age of two should wear a mask and we're asking we're we're well requiring mask those anybody over the age of two who come to the hospital mm-hmm. who works in the hospital to wear a mask
0: there some people are comparing this to the flu and they're wondering you know what is the difference between this particular virus and the influenza virus? Can you explain that a little bit? I know flu season sure. is coming up
1: and that's a good question because influenza and this virus are both both respiratory viruses they have a lot of things in common from the standpoint that they are viral infections and they are spread similarly and using masks, and we act if, if, if we have patients in the hospital who have influenza, we wear masks to prevent spread. This fire, and we, we do the same with this. This virus is different, however. One of the ways it's certainly different is that the mortality rate associated with this virus in people who are especially vulnerable is much higher. We have a lot of experience with influenza epidemics and even pandemics, and those are severe Mm -hmm. fortunately we've not had anything like happened in 1918 but the usual influenza that we're familiar with the mortality rate is less than one percent significantly In this one, it's certainly more than 1%. So the the mortality rate in vulnerable people is higher. Mm -hmm. Other issues related to this that are different is that it's a very odd virus in that it can cause secondary morbidities that Uh we've not seen with influenza. For example, people can have more severe people can be left with renal failure, for example. We Mm -hmm. see a lot of renal failure with this virus in older people in particular. Mm -hmm. We've seen that in some children here. We also know that it can affect the vessels and the lining of the vessels, and strokes have been seen. It's not uncommon for strokes to be seen in individuals. And in fact, using anticoagulant therapy is something that's being done, particularly in adult hospitals, mm-hmm. um, because it's, we of the concern for strokes. So people can have strokes, even young adults had had strokes. Um, you can have pulmonary emboli. That's not something that we see with influenza. So some of the long-term complications associated with an infection are very different than from influenza. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is that we don't know now, there's a lot we don't know about this virus. It's an unusual respiratory virus, but even for people who are not so sick and who recover, we don't know if there can be any long-term complications. We're still trying to understand, sure. even for those individuals. So I, you know, it's it's not influenza,
0: right? Because of some of those secondary issues you talked about with the lungs and with uh, kidneys and with and stroke and possibly. potential
1: strokes or sure. pulmonary emboli, thrombi mm-hmm. that can mm-hmm. be potentially anywhere in the body.
0: And those are blockages, basically, exactly. Right? Also, let's talk about, and we talked a little bit about it with the masking, but why six feet apart? Why are we trying to distance? Well,
1: good question. And I, you know, I'm going to tell you what, as I understand where this came from, it is the recommendation from the CDC. They do not really provide their data for why the six feet. But we do know that back in the 1930s, when researchers were trying to understand transmission of TB, they learned that TB droplets could be expelled and be in the air up to maybe three feet of distance or about a meter. And actually, the World Health Organization doesn't recommend six feet of distancing. They recommend three feet, and it's really probably based on research that was done more than a century ago. More recently, the first SARS epidemic that happened in 2003 and wasn't as extensive as this one, studies in airplanes were done, and and reports were that people in airplanes could be who were sitting more than three feet away from someone who was infected could be infected by this virus, or are the virus that's similar to this virus. So I and it so. Based on that experience, I'm assuming that's where the CDC's recommendation came from, the six okay. feet of social distancing. But in all honesty, I don't know that we actually know for sure how far. And in, I'm sure in some situations that, that, that even a greater distance, it's probably likely that it occurs, that it spread further. But we really don't know.
0: Any other myths or anything that you're hearing out in the news or in the public that that you'd like to dispel or just clarify a little bit as, as an infectious diseases expert?
1: You know, I think one of the questions and, and, and a lot of discussion you hear about is children, mm-hmm. um, you know, and how can children become infected with this? How and, and then if they are infected, how infectious they are. And again, I think that's something that we're still learning. Um, there are more recent data, fairly recent, that came out this week, a study from South Korea um, about this infection in children that, that really was related to trying to understand this. And what they reported is that children over ten years of age appeared to be, those who were in who had coronavirus appeared to be as infectious or as contagious as adults and young, young adults and older adults. For children under 10, that did not appear to be the case. That did not mean that children under 10 years of age couldn't become infected, but it right. did not appear that they were as likely to transmit infection. I think that has to be confirmed. We also don't know how many children actually become infected. if they We know that if they do or are infected, that they're much less sick, they're much less likely to become seriously ill. They may have a milder infection. That doesn't mean that some children aren't particularly ill, because we've had, certainly had some very ill children in the hospital, and fortunately most of them have recovered, though. Right. Um, but we really don't know ab- uh, about children how many are actually infected and, and, and how well some of these asymptomatic children and are even mildly symptomatic can transmit. Mm-hmm. There's that's, This is another area that we still don't understand. Right. But I think we know that children can become infected. We've seen them, we've, but it's just not as common, and... As for children to become seriously ill as adults.
0: I suspect that this is going to be around for a while, this virus, (laughs) and um, although a lot of people, a lot of companies are working on a vaccine and or treatments for symptoms, what are some of the things that you think will, some of the precautions that we're taking that you think will stick around for a while. What's the new normal going to look like?
1: This virus is widespread in our community and in many communities in this country. There's no doubt that we don't have just moderate. We have substantial transmission. You can see that on the data that we hear daily from from the news. So I think to be able to decrease transmission and and to try to do something about getting this, this virus, the amount of virus that's being transmitted down to a level that we can actually have a chance of going back to our normal activities we're going to be need to continue to wear a mask yeah Um, we're going to have it needs to become part of our normal Mm -hmm. just as it has in many countries where they've actually been able to do something and control this infection if we can decrease the transmission the virus it can't continue to be as widespread but it's Mm -hmm. going to take us and all of us to do it and then I think, you know, distancing ourselves, not putting ourselves in a position that we can acquire the virus if we're around others. And it, and it, that's that's difficult, not being in large crowds, not mm-hmm. going back to our usual activities. But if we do, and if we don't do something like this, we're gonna to continue to have, that's just the nature of viruses. Yeah. If they can find a host that they have not infected and it spreads pretty easily, then it's gonna, if they don't have, if the virus can't find a host, and if we're protecting ourselves from becoming infected, that's how we're going to resolve this pandemic that we're in and that our country's in.
0: Some people have talked about the vaccines you know, that are being worked on and, and whether something is going to potentially come out this year that would be able to protect us <laughs> or even in 2021. What do you say to people who might be afraid to be in that first wave of getting the vaccine? Because it seems like it's being developed more quickly than yeah, vaccines usually yeah. are developed
1: no you're absolutely right it's amazing how much progress this country laboratories throughout the country and the world have made in developing a vaccine and i think that the safety is a concern and it has to be foremost not only getting a vaccine out there so that people can actually be protected against it but making sure that all the precautions were taken in developing and testing this vaccine, you know, it's being done in in the different phases that are, are that are required before the FDA is going to approve a vaccine. From my understanding, that is being required for every company that's producing a vaccine. The safety um, and what's being done to make sure that safety that they are safe has to be reported so that people can be assured that that all the steps were taken. Right. To make these as safe as possible.
0: We do have a resource on the children's website that people can go to if they right. want to see our visitation policy as it stands and any other resources that we have been producing, any guidelines uh, from the CDC, et cetera, and that's at childrensal.org slash coronavirus. Right. Um, any Anything else? Th- any other thoughts? I
1: think I just want to to assure people who have children who are sick, and they may not have coronavirus, but they may have other medical issues, that the hospital is doing everything, our hospital and other hospitals in the community. We are here to provide care to children who are ill, and we know that parents are concerned in this pandemic and in this time about bringing their children to the hospital, but I, we're the hospital is doing everything we can to make this hospital, to make it safe, a safe environment, to provide Care to children, so that when we're providing care and whatever it is that is safe for the families who come in, for the children who are hospitalized here, we worry that parents bring in are worried about coming into the environment that they they will be exposed, and then they may wait too late. And we hope that doesn't happen. We hope that parents will talk to their care providers, whoever they need to, if they need to get further assurance. But I think the hospital is a safe place for for children who need care.
0: And we want to make sure that they're not putting off some of the care that they need. Exactly. If they do have other issues unrelated to the coronavirus, just making sure that they they stay um, on top of those issues. That's
1: exactly right. And not don't wait too late. Call your health provider if you're concerned about something. But the, any physician, any of the nurses, we're going to work with you to make sure your children are cared for and cared for safely.
0: Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Hutto, oh, for joining us.
1: You're welcome.
0: Thanks for listening to Inside Pediatrics. More podcasts like this one can be found at childrensal.org forward slash inside pediatrics.